0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, The Purpose of Suffering, recorded November 24th, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: Today, I thought I'd talk about a few more questions from the question box, or at least start with one. We'll see how much time we have. Uh, Some of the questions can be dealt with in a fairly short answer, at least uh, initially, if you still have questions about it that can turn into a whole discussion. Uh, Some of the questions cover a uh, a larger area, uh, more ground. And this one today covers an enormous field, but uh, we'll try to get some handle on it. This question uh, reads, this is the whole question. First of all, it begins with a quote, which I don't know where this quote came from, but it's a what, wherever the quote came from, you would find some version of it in almost any mystical tradition. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey, so that my heart may be truly awakened, and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. So in a sense, it's a prayer to have suffering. So the question is, any comments? What, me, suffer, Ick. Why would someone Why would someone want to suffer? What is the purpose slash role of suffering? So I think we can make that the topic of this. What is the purpose or role of suffering in life? The ultimate answer, that is the answer from the point of view of enlightenment or gnosis or liberation, is that suffering doesn't exist. So in that sense it has no role. And you'll find this in one version or another. Galen. Hi. Hi. I didn't mean to create that kind of stir. That's okay. <laughs> Haven't seen this man for mm. a year almost, I think. The the topic is what is the purpose of suffering? Oh goody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice cheery one this morning.
1: We're gonna have some fun with it though, I hope. Anyway, this idea that there is no suffering is a radical, shocking idea. But you will find some version of it in all the mystical traditions. Here's Bokar Rinpoche. He's a Tibetan Buddhist. He says, What is suffering? What is death? In reality, they do not have any existence. They appear within the framework of the manifestations produced by the mind wrapped up in an illusion just as they appear in a dream. In the emptiness of mind there is no death. No one dies, there is no suffering and no fear. So he's speaking now from the point of view of enlightenment, what this is what is to be realized. There is no one uh, here who is suffering or dying. Rumi, who is a uh great poet of Islam, a Sufi, writes, We and our existences are non-existence. Because of the darkness in your eyes, you imagine that a nothing is a something. And in another verse, he describes our predicament as, uh, as thinking that we are individual beings and being um, attached to worldly things as a nothing has waylaid a nothing. The early Christian mystics said that evil wasn't a thing. It was really an apparent privation of the good. Almost like a a shadow, and that's often a description or analogy that they use, that a shadow isn't really something, it's just the absence of light. Yes? Privation, what does
0: that mean?
1: To be deprived of. It's it's etymologically related to be deprived of. So it's a absence of. An absence of good is a way to put it. Uh, This is why Dionysius the Arapagate, who is one of the fathers of Christian mysticism, writes, uh, evil, therefore, has no real being. It doesn't really exist. And this isn't just a theological or philosophical uh, conclusion. It comes from direct insights. And here's an example of one that's given to us by Julian of Norwich, who was a Christian mystic of the Middle Ages. And she's describing a, a vision of hers. And she says, I saw truly that God does everything, however small it may be, and that nothing is done by chance. But it is of the endless providence of God's wisdom. Therefore, everything which is done is well done. And I was certain that God does no sin. Therefore, sin is nothing. For in all this, sin was not shown to me. Of course, in the Christian and um, Judaic traditions, sin is the root cause of suffering. So no sin, no suffering. The way that gnosis or enlightenment puts an end to suffering is through this realization that it never existed. It's it's not a solution, uh, a practical solution, the way we normally approach suffering. Here's how Shankara, the great Hindu mystic, describes it. He says, "'Until now I have been dreaming. In my dream I wandered through the forest of illusion, from birth to birth, beset by all kinds of troubles and miseries, subject to reincarnation, decay, and death. Now by your infinite compassion, O Master, you have awakened me from my dream. You have set me free forever.'" You know, this is uh, almost exactly what Jesus said in the Gospels. He says, know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And he's talking about being free from sin and all the consequences of sin, suffering and death and so forth. And the word he uses there, the know, is a translation of a Greek word because the Gospels were originally written in Greek, and that word is gnosis. And it's this, this very special word that means n- not just any sort of knowledge, but this direct, immediate perception of ultimate reality. So the, from the ultimate point of view, this question, what is the purpose of suffering, is kind of like asking, "What is the what role do unicorns play in forest ecology? <laughs> none. Yes, none. Now, you see, if I believed in unicorns and asked you that, uh, what role do unicorns play in the forest ecology, and you said, well, uh, really, none, because they don't exist, uh, then you might say to me... Uh, uh, or or I might say to you yes I know that's that high floating philosophical mystical stuff I mean but tell me really practically what role do they play you know how can I if I go to the forest what uh, can I see the plants that they eat or their droppings or whatever so we we tend to we hear the teaching of the mystics I mean we hear the words But we tend to dismiss it because we think, well, that's just so far out, that's so radical, that would never apply to me. But mystics are are really talking about your situation now, as is, right now, not something in the future, uh, not something tomorrow. But we must admit, from the standpoint of the dream, suffering seems very real. And in fact, there would be no uh, mystics, there would be no mystical path, there would be no mystical traditions, except for this uh, apparent uh, uh, reality of suffering. That's what the mystical path is all about. It's about putting an end to suffering. It's about putting an end to something that doesn't exist. This is, mystical paths are always paradoxical this way, you know. That's why it's called mysticism. Mysticism comes again from a Greek word that that is related to our word mute. It means you can't really speak about it at a certain point. It transcends words. But we can ask, then, from this, the point of view of the dream, the point of view of delusion, what is the purpose of suffering within the dream? Because it's not just suffering that's an illusion, it's the whole experience of our being separate from all this, and that this world has some sort of objective uh, existence and so forth. So uh, suffering certainly does appear in the dream. So what role does it play in this dream? But before we can answer that, we have to ask, what is the purpose of the dream as a whole? Why should there be a dream as a whole? And one of uh, a, a typical answer that's given in the Hindu tradition here is expressed by Lali Shwari. She was a great uh, uh, Kashmir saint from the 16th century, I believe, uh, and she was a follower of Shiva. And she says, in the undifferentiated consciousness, the play of birth and death goes on. But ordinary people misunderstand it. It is simply the play of chitta-shakti. Chitta-shakti is the uh, power of consciousness to manifest things. We might say in our terms the power of imagination, just the way you can think up things, the way you can dream things. So in the particularly in the Shiva tradition, uh, Shiva's creative power is shakti. The word play here is almost certainly a translation of the Hindu or Sanskrit word maya. Uh, maya is a, the word means illusion. If you read Hindu and Buddhist texts, they always talk about this world as maya. It's like a dream. It's like an illusion. But maya itself has an interesting etymological root in Sanskrit. It's related to words like creativity, imagination, uh, uh, magic, uh, conjuring. Uh, it really has this sense of, uh, uh, that this creative power, and especially when it's translated in the West, we almost always think of it as something negative, but it has this other side of it. Here's how the Tibetan master, Wang Chempa, uh, talks about this from the point of view of enlightenment now. He says, All that is has me, universal creativity, pure and total presence as its root. How things appear is my being. How things arise is my manifestation. Sounds and words heard are my messages expressed in sounds and words. All environments and their inhabitants, life forms and experiences, are the primordial state of pure and total presence. So he's... Notice how he's describing this, this point of view of this uh, universal creativity. All this appears from this universal creativity that comes out of this, what he calls, pure and total presence, what we would call uh, consciousness itself, uh, what the Hindus would call Brahman, what the the Christians uh, would call the Godhead. So what's being described here, the world of forms is, is kind of like a work of art. It's like a drama or a dance or something. Uh, I wish we had one of those statues ever seen the statue Shiva's dance, mm-hmm. and uh he's 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 dancing the world On one hand he has these drums, and that's time and i've never forgotten every little ornament he wears is some symbol of uh the world manifestation, and it's all being done danced in this ring of fire, and it's the dance of creation and destruction they go together completely in this dance so In these traditions, you see, this is, uh, the world is being expressed as a kind of an artistic creation, like a dance or a a drama or a, a poem. So, if we want to answer the question, what is the purpose of the world, one good way to get at this is ask, what is the purpose of creativity? What is the purpose of any artistic creation? What's the purpose of a play or a movie or a symphony? Anybody got any idea? Entertainment. Entertainment. Very good. Entertain and entertains the audience, right?
2: An expression for the creator.
1: <laughs> an expression for the creator. We uh, we might say that there's something that the creator loves to do. And we in in many it's, particularly in the Western traditions, this is uh, uh, the the whole world is seen as an expression of the overflowing love of God. In Islam, it's all the expression of the breath of the merciful, the mercy of God. In Hindu, it's uh, the lila, the play. We have all these ideas. They're all very related. And if we think of uh, any artistic endeavor, you can start to get a sense of this. How many of you have done some sort of artistic endeavor, written a poem, the musician, danced, done something in your life? Uh, Dionysius, the Arapagot, this father of Christian mysticism, one of the fathers, I should say, describes this uh, manifestation of the world as God's self-diffusion. And he says, divine love is ecstatic. So the very cause of the universe himself, because of his beautiful and good love, becomes, as it were, transported out of himself in his providence for all beings. In a certain sense, God can't help it, you know, like an artist, a dancer who can't help dancing. So it's the desire of the artist to give expression to what? Why, why does an artist want to express, or what does an artist want to express?
0: Is or her experience?
1: Is or her experience? Yeah. That's certainly part of it, yeah. Share it
0: with
1: others? Share it with others.
0: Sometimes they're just a
1: burning within that's even more fuzzy in its definition. Right? Yeah, it's sort of like a static, a divine love energy, yes, that's overflowing. But also, have you ever uh, created a song or a poem or something and not known what it was going to be like until afterwards? Right? In a certain sense, art is a journey of self-discovery. It is uh, finding out what your own, what your own potential is. It's not just regurgitating experience. Certainly you rely on experience. But something uh, comes out of it that surprises even you in a certain sense. That was already there in an unmanifest form, but you don't know it until it becomes manifest. So art is a way of knowing yourself. Right? Uh, In this sense, we can think of God as, or the ultimate, or the divine, or consciousness, whatever word we want to use, we can think of as being both the author and the audience. Uh, expressing the potential that is in this consciousness, and then enjoying it, uh, appreciating it, and coming to know itself through this process. In fact, this is just the way the Sufis explain the world, and here's what Ibn Arabi, one of the great Sufis, says about this. He says, The movement that is the coming into existence of the cosmos is a movement of love. This is shown by the, the Apostle of God in the saying, I was an unknown treasure and longed to be known, so that but for this longing, the cosmos would not have become manifest in itself. This saying is, comes from a saying attributed to the Prophet, who uh, said to God, when people ask me, why did you create all this, what should I say? And God's answer is, I was an unknown treasure that longed to be known. Now, in from the ultimate point of view, there is there are no individual people here knowing this. It's only God knowing it. So it's God doing it and God knowing it. So God, as I said, is the both the uh, creator and the audience, so to speak, all wrapped up into one. So if we look at this world now as a play, as a movie, as some sort of performance, it's more like performance art, I think, and we see that this, we say then, okay, so the purpose of this world, this dream, this delusion, this appearance of things is this uh, manifestation of all these inherent possibilities for the sheer joy of it, the sheer love of it, the sheer bliss of it. Then let's ask, what makes a good play or a movie? What makes an enjoyable play or a movie? An, ent- an, en- an entertaining play or a movie? And I've got two possibilities to go. We're going to do a little experiment here. First, let's see, you throw out what your favorite movie or play. See if I know it, and if enough people know it, we may work with that. If not, I've got one to a uh, backup here. Uh, the Mission. The Mission. Has anybody else seen the mission? Oh, quite a few of you have seen the mission. Good. Okay, let's see. I think we can work at you. I remembered enough. I don't remember the characters' names. Do you remember the characters' names? Rodriguez, I think, was one. Uh, Rodriguez, yeah. I remember the actors' name. Uh-huh. Jeremy Irons. Let's see. Rodriguez was the shadow aspect of everything. All right. Jeremy Irons played... Uh, Jeremy Iron's playing.: the monk, but we're not He's one of the Jesuit priests. Let's hold that for a 2nd Let's see what else uh, uh what else we can come up with here. Something maybe more familiar, a little easier.
0: Wizard <laughs> of <laughs> that, that one is used as as an example of having all the dynamics. I know, yeah, but it's there. been so long since
1: I've seen yeah. it, I but don't it's remember. It's it well so so it's still long, right? No, yes, it's great, and especially at the end. This you can read that as a yeah. kind of a spiritual. Uh, yeah. Metaphor. No, the Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> oh, really the Star Wars trilogy. What about the whole trilogy here? No. That's been a while. Forrest
2: Gump was good. We probably also. I haven't seen that one. Oh yes.
0: Yeah, no.
1: I'm. I'm going to stick. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm
0: gonna, <laughs> stick to
1: Zorba. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not Zorba, I'm going to stick to one. I'm going to. It's a very simple story. If you don't know it. <laughs> And I'm going to tell you the story, uh, it's a very famous story, but may, many of you may not know it, and then we'll go through and see uh, what role suffering plays in the story. How many of you know the story of Othello, the famous Shakespeare play?
0: <laughs>
1: Honestly, now I only know it because Jennifer and I saw the recent movie version just a few months ago, so it's fresh in my mind. It's a simple story, but it's got a lot of nice elements in here that we can have fun with. Um, Othello is a Moor. So he's from Spain. He's a black guy from Spain. This takes place, must be the 1500s during Shakespeare's time. I think it's contemporary of Shakespeare's day. It's supposed to be contemporary. And he's a military commander, and he's hired by the the state of Venice, the little city state at the time, Venice, to conduct an expedition to Cyprus and to get rid of some Turkish pirates or something. I forgot what it is. But so um, Othello is in Venice as the story opens. And Othello falls in love with Desdemona, who is the daughter of a senator in Venice. And she's in love with him. <clears throat> and they uh, would like to get married, but because Othello is a black moor, uh, her father isn't delighted by that prospect. So they run off and elope. Now, it's interesting, actually, because uh, the very fact that the Venetians would have as much respect for him uh, to hire him to lead an expedition uh, tells you something about their attitudes of the day. It was not quite the same as we have uh, in our culture. Actually, quite a bit more liberal in that sense. But in any case, the the uh, marriage would uh, would not have been approved of by her father, and so they have to elope. Now, meanwhile, Othello has a lieutenant, or a a uh, sub, uh, sub-lieutenant, sub named Iago, who has uh, been passed over for a promotion. And Othello has given Cassio the second-in-command, and Iago thought he should have it. And so he's furious, and he's plotting revenge against Othello for this slight. And they all set off together for Cyprus, and Desdemona goes along on the expedition, and they get to Cyprus, and there's a little battle, and Othello's victorious, and they sort of uh, are, I don't know, hanging out around Cyprus, enjoying themselves before the next command, I guess. And Iago starts to work on Othello, and starts to plant these suspicions in Othello's mind that uh, Cassio and Desdemona are having an affair. And the the art of the play here is this, this villain Iago is written so marvelous, marvelously by Shakespeare. The way he uh, does this, the way he insinuates these things and gets into Othello's uh, soul with this is really what the, the story is all about. And he's always saying things like, and I, this aren't Shakespeare's lines, I can't write, write like Shakespeare, but uh, Iago's saying, well, I, I, I wouldn't want to say anything about Cassio. He's such uh, a noble uh, man and he's such a good friend of yours. And Othello says, what do you mean? What do you mean? So, oh, no, no, I, I couldn't say anything, you know. <laughs> and he makes Othello drag it out of him, you see. And all, but all this is false. Uh, actually, Cassio's been spending a lot of time with Desdemona, but he's, uh, he's petitioning for something. Do you remember what it was? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a perfectly innocent. But Othello starts to see it now through these eyes of this growing jealousy and rage and he's struggling with himself could this really be true because he and Desdemona are really in love he really adores her and she seems to adore him but uh he keeps now misinterpreting things with Iago's uh coaching and finally Iago uh his Iago's wife steals a handkerchief a very special handkerchief that Othello had given to Desdemona and plants it in uh Cassio's room somehow and uh, arranges a scene where Cassio is uh, uh, seems to be giving this back or receiving it or something and and he arranges for Othello to v- witness this from a distance so he can't hear what they're saying and that does it. And now uh, Othello's enraged and then there's a sub murder plot here. But Othello goes back to um, his uh, house and he finds Desdemona and he accuses her of having an affair with. Cassio, and she denies it, but he is absolutely convinced, and he kills her. And he strangles her, I think, on the bed. And then, as in many Shakespeare tragedies, everything happens at once here. Uh, Let's see what the order of things are. Cassio has been wounded in some fight, but... Oh, no! uh, um, Iago's wife shows up and says... You killed Desdemona? And he says, yes, she betrayed me. Uh, you know, I found her handkerchief. The handkerchief I gave her, she gave away to Cassio. And and, De- and Iago's wife said, but no, my husband asked for that. I got it for him. And now Othello begins to realize that this has all been a plot and that he's done this horrible thing and he's killed the wife that he loves because of this jealousy that Iago had planted in him or stirred up in him. And then uh, she uh, dies, and she kills herself, or he kills her. Oh, no, Iago shows up, and he kills his wife. So now there are two bodies on the bed. And then Cassio shows up, and um, Othello finds a sword someplace, or a dagger, and he commits suicide, and he falls on the bed. So there are these bodies piled high on the bed at the end of the play here, and uh, they take old Cassio away. I mean, they take Iago away, and they're going to... Uh, execute him, they're going to torture him, put him to death, punish him, and Cassio becomes the new commander. So this is considered to be one of the great uh, plays of world literature, written by Shakespeare. And if we go through this play, let's see what would happen if we took the suffering out. What kind of play would we have? (laughs)
0: <laughs> don't have a play without it. Well, let's let's
1: begin though. I mean, first of all, the fact that Desdemona and uh, Othello have to elope is due to this racism. So let's eliminate the racism. And and by the way, this isn't actually so material to the plot, except it sets up the fact that Desdemona. Uh, she's estranged from her father. She has no one to turn to. So she's totally reliant on Othello. And it also shows how much she loved him because she was willing to defy tradition and convention and all that to marry him, right? But let's subtract out racism. Racism is a great source of suffering in the world, as we all know, it's true. Uh, and so there's, this is a society where there's no racism. So uh, now Desdemona and Othello meet, and they fall in love, and they go to her father, and they say, we want to get married. He says, sure, we'll have a great big wedding. I'll pay for it. So that's nice. This is be the first act. You see them go to the father, and and he says, yes, of course I approve. He's a fine young man, this Othello here. But wait a minute. He's a military commander. Now, war is a big, big source of suffering, so we have to make him into something else, not a military commander. Mm. Uh, What can we make him into? Baker. A baker. <laughs> uh, sure, a baker. That's a good one. Well, that's a source of suffering
2: too,
1: in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so she marries Othello, the baker, right? And then let's see. Uh, so they got nowhere to go, so they stay in Venice. Venice is a nice city. Now, let's say we're let's let's visualize this filming this uh, here, because I think we'll get more mileage out of it. We're going to film this place. So. We see them, we see them meeting and we, and we see them falling in love and they go to the father and they want to get married. He says, sure. And they, there's a big wedding, right? And the wedding goes on, you know, you've seen home movies of weddings. It's very exciting, isn't it?
0: <laughs>
1: and afterwards, uh, you know, he sets up, uh, he goes back to his bakery and he starts baking bread. And I don't know, maybe she, uh, uh, Let's give her something to do. After all, we want to have a modern woman who's not oppressed by her husband and all that. She should have some. What, what could she do? Sells flowers. Sells flowers. Does flower arranging. Let's make her more artistic. So there they are. And in one, downstairs in their house, in one side is the bakery and the other side is the flower arranging part. And there's this, uh, you know, open space so they can see each other, you know. So all day long, they're blowing kisses at each other and he's pounding his bread and she's arranging her flowers and, and you know, okay? Now, we could, we, we got to have a little kind of interest here. Now, really, there should be no jealousy in this world because that's a tremendous source of suffering, but we might be able to work in some kind of misunderstanding. So maybe Cassio starts coming by and stopping at the flower shop and talking to, um, to Desdemona, and now there, we see them, he's pounding his bread and he looks over and he sees she's with Castile. They keep talking, da, 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 da. And, uh, uh, so Iago stops in and, uh, and, and Othello says, Iago, what's, what is going on? What's the secret they've got going here? And Iago says, um, uh oh I, I don't think it's anything. It's uh, uh but who knows, maybe they are plotting something. So Othello gets a little worried and he tries to talk to Desdemona about it, and she says, Oh no, it's nothing. He just he likes flowers, he's interested in flowers and so forth. And and uh Othello's getting more and more worried and more and more worried. And finally Iago says, You know, we should really have a talk. And Othello says, "Yes, and so they go out and they they take this long walk. It's at night, and they walk down by the canals, you know, and there'll be a, a very uh, dramatic scene with lots of dark lighting mm-hmm. and Iago said uh, there may be there may be something going on between Desdemona and Cassio. I don't know, but uh i I do think we should talk more about it, and how do you feel about these things? Are you a a jealous guy? are you a modern guy who's willing to give his wife?" room to explore her nature, and this and that, and they had this kind of conversation, and uh, fo- so finally, Othello says, well, I, I do love her, and I, of course, would like her just to be faithful to me, but she was young when we got married, she didn't have many experiences, so maybe she needs some experience, and I will I will accept that, and so forth, and so he's not feeling too hot about this, Othello, but he's, you know, willing to accept it, and See, even now we have to have a little suffering in here to get any kind of interest going. And they come back to the house, and he's kind of dejected. And uh, Cassius says, Well, look, let's have a drink. Let's go down into the bakery and we'll have a drink. And uh, they open the door, and they come in, and it's all dark. And suddenly everybody goes, Surprise! And it was his birthday, and they'd been planning a surprise birthday party for him. They weren't having an affair. Yeah, and there are flowers on the table, and the lights come on, and, and there's music, and then a dancing, you know. That's a very exciting story, isn't it? The truth of the matter is, if you think about it, and you can do, do this exercise with any of your favorite movies, like The Mission or something, start taking the suffering out of the story. Start to subtract it out, and see what happens to the story. What happens is boring. I used to work in Hollywood and uh, behind the scenes and uh, I know what it is to create a, a, or try to create a big hit blockbuster movie that everybody's going to want to pay lots of money to see. And you cannot make a movie out of, uh, boy meets girl, uh, uh, boy and girl fall in love and they get married and live happily ever after. It doesn't, it's not a movie. You can't do two hours of a wedding. It's boring. <laughs> Well, it depends what we mean by happiness here. That's interesting. (laughs) Good drama needs conflict. The essence of drama is conflict. It is conflict. And believe me, uh, playwrights and screenwriters and stuff sit around thinking up interesting conflicts, thinking up problems to give to their uh, uh, protagonists. Heroes need challenges. There has to be some challenge here. Lovers need obstacles. Romeo and Juliet f- meet, fall in love, have a big wedding and go to the seashore. It's not a movie. It's not a play. <laughs> Nothing happens. Saints need trials and tribulations. Otherwise, why? We don't know they're heroes. We don't know their true lovers. We don't know their saints until there's this kind of testing. <clears throat> Do you see what I mean? Until it's brought out for them as characters. One of the, one of the great uh, devices in uh, films, particularly in modern uh, day and age, is to take an ordinary person and put them in extraordinary circumstances and see how they rise to the occasion. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the most common... Uh, uh, themes, not even really a theme, but a situation you'll, you see over and over and over again you'll find in movies. Some, I don't know, a mother, her, her son is kidnapped, so suddenly she has to become a detective and this and that, she has to do all these things she never knew she was capable of doing, right? This is why Rumi says, I wonder at the seeker of purity who flees cruelty at the time of polishing, Love is like a lawsuit, and to suffer cruelty is the witness. If you have no witness, your lawsuit is lost. So what does he mean by this? I wonder at the seeker of purity who flees cruelty at the time of polishing. The time of polishing is on, on that period on the spiritual path when you start running into obstacles and problems and things get difficult and, and so forth. So the idea here is there's this purification or polishing going on. Then he says love is like a lawsuit. And to suffer cruelty is the witness. The How you face uh, cruelty and how you face suffering mm. is what testifies to whether you're a true lover or not, you know? And any of you uh, I think who uh, fell in love and, and found somebody you thought was right for you and they uh, they felt that they really loved you and all that and the first time you got a cold they said well i, I I'm going to go check in a motel I don't want to get your cold <laughs> you begin to wonder what sort of love this is do you know what I mean every little inconvenience they're running off they don't want to be exposed to this sort of stuff I mean if they if they're not willing to put up your germs from a cold what's going to happen later in life when things really get tough you know so how do we know uh that people truly love us? There's a certain testing going on. We watch people. We see how they react in certain situations, right? Because we want people we can rely on. But how do we don't know that in, unless the situation brings it out in us? So he's saying that uh, love is like a lawsuit. It's like uh, going to court, and in order to win a lawsuit, you have to have witnesses. And he says that... uh, uh if you have no suffering, if you've never suffered, you have no witness. You have no way of knowing what's, what you're made of here. You see, you see this image here? Mm-hmm. Now, we can then think of spiritual seeking here, as Rumi starts to talk about, as the ultimate drama within the big drama of life, this big play, this big dream. <clears throat> Through spiritual seeking is the way... This divine treasure, as the Sufis talk about it, becomes fully known in human form through enlightenment, through gnosis. The whole process of becoming known is by you and you and you and you becoming enlightened and knowing. And that is consciousness getting to know itself. It's kind of a game of hide and seek that goes on and on and on, you know. There's no game of hide and seek if the person doesn't go hide, really. And if, you, and if you think, oh, that's too much suffering, so let's, you pretend to hide behind <laughs> that bush, but, you know, peek out a little bit, and then I can come find you without any problem. That's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I'm I serious, know you know. <laughs> this, these things aren't really that hard to understand. If we stop trying to figure them out philosophically and understand them just in, in relation to our lives, and particularly in this relation to this business of creativity. <clears throat> We could say, and this is an analogy, but our condition, it's as though Shakespeare had written Othello, and then, uh, especially if it's a movie, then he's going to play all the parts, right? Let's say he's an awesome, wonderful actor. So he plays all the parts, and somewhere along the line, he forgets that he's the author of this play, and who he really is, and he starts to th- thinking he's really Othello, and then he starts really suffering, Right? Now, oddly enough, you know, when Shakespeare wrote this play, as he was writing it, he probably suffered with Othello. At least anything that I've ever written, you know, I feel what the characters feel. But I still know that somehow this isn't ultimately real, you know. But supposing I forgot. So now he's trapped in this horrendous situation. He thinks he's Othello. Now, if he had, if... If he had the, uh, if Shakespeare had the foresight, he might have written the play that at, at a certain time a period in this play, uh, Othello meets, he's on the island of Cyprus, he meets this, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, oh, a, a Sufi sheikh on Cyprus, you see? And he starts going to him for advice. And this sheikh says, well, you know, you're all wrapped up in this jealousy and you're so attached to Desdemona and all this, and look what it's doing to it's eating you up. Maybe there's something beyond uh what's going on here. Maybe there's something that transcends all this. And then the play would have been how Shakespeare, who thinks he's Othello, discovers that he isn't Othello, he's Shakespeare. That would be an interesting drama. Pretty, uh, a lot of twists and turns in that one. The motive for our going on a spiritual path is the suffering just the way the motive for people doing things in a drama is a suffering or a challenge or some obstacle <clears throat> if there's no motive nothing happens if romeo and juliet get married and live happily ever after that's it there's nothing there's nothing motivates them the story of buddha is a classic uh, story that does just about that and this is a little drama the, the Buddha grew up in a, a very wealthy household. He was a prince. His father was a warlord or whatever. And his father, uh, sent the, as the story goes, sent the gardeners out at night to clip all the little dying blossoms, shielded his son, the prince, from any sort of exposure to death, to suffering, to disease, for anything like that, surrounded him with luxuries and pleasures and whatnot, so the Buddha grew up a very spoiled little boy. Didn't know anything about suffering. Very frivolous little boy, too. Very shallow little boy, we can imagine, anyway. And the story is, he got he had one thing going for him. He had a little curiosity. What lay beyond the walls of this palace, this sumptuous palace? And one day he talked his charioteer into taking him out against his father's wishes. And he goes out and uh, he sees three things. He sees a, a, an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. And he's absolutely shocked. Now, these, what does this story mean? He's being exposed to suffering. That These are three <clears throat> basic fundamental forms of suffering in human life. And it's this that motivates him then to give up his uh, princely life and to go on a spiritual path and to seek enlightenment and find the end to all suffering and also become a great teacher and come back and try to help us. So this is a story, and this story is about the role that suffering plays in within this dream. It motivates us. Here's how Mircea Iliade, who I mentioned earlier, this great uh, scholar of comparative religion, sums up the whole Hindu view of the role suffering has within this dream. Thus the cosmos and life have an ambivalent function, On the one hand, they fling man into suffering, and by virtue of karma, enmesh him in the infinite cycle of transmigrations. On the other hand, indirectly, they help him to seek and find salvation for his soul. For the more man suffers, the more the desire for emancipation increases in him, the more intensely he thirsts for salvation. Thus the forms and illusions of the cosmos put themselves at the service of man whose supreme end is emancipation or salvation. And then there's a quote from the Samkhya Sutras. From Brahman down to the blade of grass, the creation is for the benefit of the soul until supreme knowledge is attained. So this whole drama is for our benefit, including and especially the suffering. That is what motivates us. Othello would never go uh, uh, become a spiritual seeker if he was just happily married to Desdemona. It's only when things start to go wrong that we start saying, whoa, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? That our curiosity is sparked, aroused, that, our, uh, our, that native intuition we have that happiness is possible. We I mean, were always seeking happiness. We're just looking the wrong place uh that that gets fired, and we start to be willing to um, look beyond our immediate pleasures and attachments and so forth here's how Rumi puts this from a Sufi Islamic point of view hes speaking about Allah here he says he has afflicted you from every direction in order to put you back to the direction less interesting. Hmm? So let's let's read this quote again here, see where we stand. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey, so that my heart may be truly awakened, and my practice of liberation and universal compassion be truly fulfilled. So we can begin to understand why a seeker might actually pray for difficulties, pray for challenges, pray for forms of suffering. Because this is the motivation that uh, awakens the heart and fulfills the practice. But what about this last business in here about universal compassion? It says, so that my heart may be truly awakened, my practice of liberation, and universal compassion be truly fulfilled. Well, compassion means, literally, to suffer with. Passion and calm. With, suffer. Passion in in the classic Latin sense meant suffering. If there's no suffering, there's no compassion. And there's a wonderful little story about this, which does not come from a spiritual source, but you know not everything uh, valuable has to come from a spiritual source. Uh, life is the greatest teacher, in life in any form. And this, this is a story, or a story about Ingrid Bergman, the actress who died not too long ago. And she had a very stormy life, in some ways very exciting life, but an awful lot of suffering in her life. She went through many husbands and marriages and breakups and all that. And then at the end of her life, she had breast cancer. And she battled for years off and on with breast cancer. And she wrote her own autobiography and was published and it was a bestseller for a while. And somebody afterwards came up to her and said, oh, I read your book and I had no idea what suffering you had in your life. I thought it was just all glamorous. And to read your book, all this suffering, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. You know that And Ingrid Bergman says, don't feel sorry for me. She said, I'm glad I had that suffering in my life. She said, I would not know anything about other people if I hadn't experienced this. She said, I feel like I really know what it means to be a human being, and I can really relate to people. That if I had no suffering in my life, I'd just be a shallow, you know, dingbat. (laughs) Well, she would have probably... (laughs)
2: I just love the way you put things. That's all every now
1: and then. I'm just a slave of my culture, like all the other
0: mystics.
1: (laughs) Anyway, but there's a lesson in here, and she had the wisdom to recognize this, you see. It's not that we would necessarily go out and choose to get breast cancer. And it's not that if you found out you had breast cancer, you wouldn't want to treat it. All this is part of the play in here, also. But it's also taking that broader view of things that we are going to have suffering in our lives as long as we're not enlightened. So given that fact, how are you going to view it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to spend your life in terror of it, running, hiding, trying to get away, like trying to get away from your own shadow? Or are you going to embrace it with a kind of wisdom, even though you may be trying to alleviate immediate problems, but in that process, see a deeper value of it. And that's really the role that suffering does have in our, uh, within this dream, this drama. And without it, there would not be much of a drama. Mm-hmm. And finally, we might also say that w- why is compassion, or we might, we might, let me put it this way, finally we might ask the question, why is compassion a spiritual value here? Why would someone pray to have universal compassion? Why not just skip that part and become uh, truly awakened and liberated from suffering? And we might say that that, uh, the experience of suffering at the deepest level, I'm speaking a little metaphorically here, is God's way of ensuring that people who do walk the spiritual path and do become enlightened don't end up as solitary realizers. That's a term from the Mahayana tradition, and it's a criticism of people who follow a spiritual path only for their own sake just looking for their own relief of suffering and so now they're free and they don't care about anybody else in point of fact if you have suffered in your life and if that is what's motivated you on a spiritual path uh, and you become enlightened a funny kind of paradox happens here and I don't know really how to explain it without it seeming mysterious but then that's the name of the game here this is mysticism after all and I'll just speak from my own experience. After my Gnosis, I had no intention of teaching anybody. I did not even see anybody to teach. I did not see anything wrong. I wandered around for days and days and everything was perfect. Literally. And, and not because some extraordinary light was shining through. It was just the way things are. I remember very vividly uh, actually being in Port Townsend waiting for the ferry to go across to Whidbey Island, and there were all these tourists there, and, you know, the husband and wife were poring over maps, and the kids are running around and getting in trouble, and they're yelling at them, and it was just all absolutely perfect. I wouldn't have changed a thing, not a thing. And I began uh, meeting then people again. I started staying in these communities and so forth, and sometimes, you know, just in a conversation, people would be talking about their suffering, and I would... Talk a little bit with them. And, and at some point, I began to realize they, they really believe this. I mean, they really are stuck. And a couple of times, I actually, at a very inappropriate places, burst out laughing. Mm. And people looked at me like, you know, how heartless you are. <laughs> and I began to realize something. I began to realize, no. And I began to remember, no, these people actually believe this. They're actually living this, this suffering. And because really there is no difference between us, it was my suffering. It's not personal anymore, so there isn't personal suffering, but it is my suffering. It is all of our suffering, it is our collective suffering. And so this prayer to be awakened, not just the, the, the enlightenment part of the liberation, actually in a funny way they go together, but also that <laughs> sense of compassion is equally important, equally important. So this I think is a is a wonderful prayer uh, a very wise prayer, and a prayer that takes a lot of courage to pray i would the only thing that I might question here is there's a little bit of uh, uh, hesitation grant me that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings, and that's written big there
0: <laughs>
1: but it's a good start. you start praying for that and then then the question is, what is appropriate? And then when big ones come down the line say, wait a minute, wait a minute, is this not appropriate? That forces you to look at it and say, you know. So are there any uh, questions about this subject? Yes.
0: What's the difference between this feeling of pain and emotional response and suffering? Because it seems to me that the Buddha, once he reached enlightenment, would still feel pain and respond emotionally, but was not suffering. Right. So, what is the difference? How do you
1: know? Well, you know, I mean, this is this is why you are your own authority on a spiritual path. When your suffering is ended, there's nothing more to seek, so that's it. And you, you're the only one who really can know that. I mean, nobody else can look at you and tell you that. And that is how you know that that's the end of the spiritual path. That's precisely how you know. Does attachment have anything to do with that? Uh, yes, attachment has a lot to do with it, but even more deeply than attachment, here. Here's a gong here. Now, you do a very good job, I'm, I'm whacking that gong pretty hard, I don't want to whack it too much harder, I'll break my stick, right? Does anybody think the gong suffers? I thought you were raising your hand <clears throat> give me your finger now <laughs> you see the look on his face <laughs> rather reluctant here he's wondering is this appropriate suffering
0: <laughs>
1: the bottom line is the difference is there's no self in this gong look around you I wouldn't do this to my cat because my cat has a sense of self but, uh, some people wouldn't do this to a tree. But, you know, where, who we think has a sense of self varies. That's, that's good proof, for, or not good proof, but it's a good indication that maybe the sense of self is kind of imaginary, not all that fixed. It's not obvious to everybody what is self and what is not self. Some people attribute selfhood to trees. If you go beyond this culture, you find that people attribute selfhood to rocks even in the, Ojibwa, uh, Native American tradition, there are certain rocks that have selfhood. You would never do that to a a self-rock. It's self that experiences suffering. The realization is there is no one in here suffering. There are There is pain, there are emotional responses, there can be even violent sorts of, of responses, anger and so forth, but it isn't happening to anyone. It's very much like going to a movie and being moved by a movie. And you're reacting to the movie, right? You might, you might get sad, and we are get sad in the movie. You know? The, 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 right here, Romeo and Juliet have just met, and they've just fallen in love, and they've just set up house, and everything's going great, and then Romeo finds out he has cancer. <sighs> right? The tears start to come, you know? Hanky's passed around, you hear in the audience, <laughs> yeah, big hit. <laughs> no, I know it's gonna be a big hit. If I'm the producer of that movie and I go to the theater and I hear people crying, and I, and i not, what I do is I watch outside as they come out, I watch their faces very, if I see tears streaming down, big hit, big hit. I call up and say, pump the publicity into this one, we got, we got a winner. Why? people don't mind experiencing sadness as long as it's not happening to them. You see what I mean? As long as they're not the victims of it. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock defined fear. He was asked, what is fear? Once, because he dealt in fear, you know, psycho. And and he said, fear is what people will pay five bucks to experience. (laughs) As long as as long as they don't feel it's happening to them. In fact, we want to feel the whole range of emotions, of human emotions. We want to uh, know what our complete possibilities are in experience, but we just don't want it to be happening to us. We just don't want to pay the price for it. We don't want to pay the price. Mm-hmm. Except the $5. Of the price. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and 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 that's why uh, we think we do pay the price, and that's precisely our delusion. It, we aren't, there's no price to pay it is free right now. You don't have to go to the movies. Although I like movies too, you know, that's part of the play as well, the play within the play within the play. So it's a very difficult question to answer, but if you look at your own experience in terms of those activities that you do, and and, uh, uh, entertainment is 90 percent about this, where you can forget yourself, sports activities, uh, going to the movies, um, I don't know, whatever you like to do, where you lose yourself. Why are we so attracted to that? It's not losing ourself in the sense that experience isn't going on. There's going be tremendous energy in that. Go to a sporting event, you know, and you see the fans when their their team is winning, you know, and they leap up and are screaming, ah, you know. It's like the merge with this mass of just energy. Right. So it's not it's it's something much more subtle and has or let me put it this way I'll put it to you technically, the way Dr. Wolf, my teacher, expressed it. Enlightenment has nothing to do with a change of content in consciousness. It's not that some things that were there before are no longer there, and some things that weren't there are now there, unless you think of self as a content of consciousness. But even that is, it's seeing through or seeing that this sense of self is purely imaginary. It's an, it's an imaginary boundary that is part of the play and part of the game and can be redrawn or dispensed with or put back or whatever. And it isn't really there. That's what it means to say suffering ends. There is no longer any sense of a victim in all this. There's no longer a sense that this is happening to someone. That I am experiencing this pain, or I am threatened by this disease, or uh, whatever it is.
0: I'd like to give an example um, from a few days ago. When I, I was at Jamocha's by myself, with a cup of cappuccino, and, but I had the newspaper there, And it had the story about Todd and Corban and and the mudslide down in Roseburg. So, um, I was sipping the cappuccino and I was reading and I noticed that, as I read, this pain arose in my chest. And I was watching very closely my response and I noticed the tears come up and start to come down. And I could almost see myself from a distance, you know, the hand on the cup and, and, um, you know, the newspaper and this hand. And I wondered, am I suffering that feel pain and compassion about this whole situation? But is it mine? I I couldn't really say that it was mine. But I felt it so deeply.
1: Okay. But that's wonderful. That's a wonderful inquiry in the midst of suffering to say, well, is this suffering? What's so terrible about this? What's so terrible about sadness?
0: I wouldn't say it. There's a that's a terribleness. There was almost a sweetness about it because it was so um, real or so life. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Close to. Close. I wasn't hating it. Right. It was poignant.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just touched it. Mm-hmm. And then we have the circle here on Wednesday, right. and and again I might have questioned myself the same way as my response. You know mine or is it just response but then the next day i was feeling um i think i was suffering the next day because i did something i don't usually do i sat down in the afternoon and turned on the television and watched oprah (laughs) 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 that's a good sign (laughs) i'm wasting my precious life how selfish of me how self-centered because i have an opportunity to be alive today and i'm choosing instead to
1: Live vicariously. It's funny. You see, why did you, 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 you turned on Oprah to forget yourself? Oh,
0: mm-hmm. um, well, I knew it. Too. Right. I watched myself
1: do it. But the, again, it's not, you know, don't, don't feel guilty about it. The, the watching is what's important. And yeah, you watch it enough yeah. and you won't want to turn on Oprah at a certain point because you'll see how futile it all is. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to drive yourself to a discipline not to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's through the watching that you yourself lose the desire to turn on Oprah. Why do you want to escape from life, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking this.
1: Yeah, well, that's wonderful. The ultimate question, though, is to, to turn the attention completely into this who might be suffering here. When you say, well, is this suffering? And you watch and you see, well, no, it's just sadness, you know, and it's, it has this bittersweet quality. So, I mean, this is all wonderful to look at. But if you begin to feel a sense of Usually in that situation, we sense a little sense of panic about it. It will be a clue that this is happening to me. I'm one of my, you know, uh, I have friends who have just lost their close friends in this freak, weird accident, yeah. you know, and that you, you feel that and then turn the attention and say, mm-hmm. okay, so there's this little, even this little sense of panic mm-hmm. or whatever is arising. But who's that happening to? Is there anybody in there that it's happening to?
0: I guess the biggest sense of self that comes out of that is that um, um, you know these people died suddenly I could die suddenly today. People, why, aren't, why aren't I living up to my potential why don't I wake up right now and, and live this moment instead of watching Oprah
1: well this is what the Buddha decided to do why, why don't you wake up right
0: now I don't know what are you waiting for Mary Song I don't know either <laughs>
1: no but this is the story of the Buddha you know, it's the same thing. He saw that corpse, and he said, "Listen, I don't want to go back to the palace and watch Oprah all day. I got to wake up. I'm not going to waste my life." I mean, they had their version of Oprah then. You know, I don't know. They had court jesters come in and entertain the the folks, and nothing's changed in two thousand five hundred years. In that in that sense, and the the other side of it, why don't you do it just now? I mean. You know, there is, you have to keep seeking until you find. That's. You don't have any choice. When you are on a spiritual path, you know you've reached a turning point when it's no longer a choice. When you couldn't go back and spend your life watching Oprah. If that's the case with you, then just relax, forget it. You don't have any choice here, so you just have to keep going along with it.
2: I have a question. A couple of weeks ago when I was here, you were, you were talking about... Um... Uh, you were also talking about suffering, but you were talking, and you said something in terms of yourself when, like, um, when Jennifer is late coming home, and you get concerned for her. You know, now, so would you sort of explain to me your process in terms of you, you have these feelings about, you know, the concern is there and, and worry, whether you want whatever you're you feeling. So then, how do you have these experiences? without, you know, being sort of attached or concerned or whatever it is that hooking into it as being something personal. How do you have this and not have it?
1: If I could explain to you a trick or something, that would be it. I would do it. I'm not withholding something. The only way I can talk about it is in terms of analogies or sure. metaphors or whatever, you know, so that's why I like to use the example of going to the movies. How can you go to a movie and and come out crying and say, oh, it was such a wonderful picture? Why why is that enjoyable, the experience in the movie enjoyable, but if it was your husband or child or whatever who was dying, you wouldn't say, oh, this is a wonderful picture?
2: I don't quite get it because... Like right now, I'm sitting here, and a part of me is just observing me sitting here talking to you. Right. I've been sitting here observing what's going on here in this room, and I've also participated in laugh and joy. And, uh-huh. and, <laughs> right. You know, all this is happening, too. So there, there's, uh I mean, more than just, I'm not just this little, I'm not this thing just being here and laughing, having this experience or asking this question. There's also this observer, which is... Ah,
1: you know, ah, I mean, ah, 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 ah. Do you think there's an observer?
2: Well, there's a part of me that's not, you know.
1: Here's here's the challenge. If you think there's an observer, go find the observer. Who is that observer?
2: Well, that's what it ultimately is. I mean, ultimately it isn't this. Ultimately it's this. This is the part that's really. uh,
1: Right, you're pointing behind behind your head. What is that behind your head?
2: Um. It's what it's really all about. This is just a plaything. That's just, I mean, you, you can't have a creation without the creator. I can't, I can't be here without this <laughs> other aspect of me. And well, wait, now, aspect, now look, okay, I've got the other aspects there. L- let me,
1: let me stop you okay. for a second because you're, I can hear you figuring this out. Well, I can't have. There must be this other aspect of me and all that, you know. Your mind is trying to figure out how all this works. And part of what a spiritual path is about is not shutting that mind up, but not looking to that mind for an answer. Mm -hmm. Going to see directly. Now, I, I think you're making an assumption there's an observer. And I must say, in in my dialogue with Mary song here, I've been saying, well, you're doing the right thing. Observe, you know. But ultimately, what you want to try to find is that observer. Who is that observer? What is that observer? What does it look like? Or how big is it? Or what color is it? Or whatever. What is it? What is that observer? Me,
2: it's everything.
1: It's everything. Then, then, what's the problem with death, for instance?
2: Nothing. Oh. When I get, you know, nothing.
1: When? Well, what do you mean? When you get what?
2: When I am. When I just allow the observer to be the observer, it's just like.
1: Okay, now who's the I? Wait, wait. You just said when I allow the observer to be the observer. Now we have an I and an observer. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, okay. Uh-huh.
1: I mean, we're multiplying ourselves no. here rapidly.
2: No, 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 <that-> no. no, 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 no. Um, right now, there isn't any really I in terms of right now. What I feel like is just a. A joyful expression, and I'm just here, and tada tada and everybody's here, and I, I don't really have an, ex- I mean, I'm not really, um, I guess when I, when like you say, the personality, when this judgmental part comes in, which it isn't here right now, or I wouldn't be doing this, <laughs> <laughs> and so and that isn't there. <laughs> then I'm, it's just an expression of uh, uh, the moment.
1: And you're right, this is why we sometimes feel happier than at other times, because that self-consciousness, again, that's a clue that this self isn't really something all that concrete, otherwise you wouldn't have the sense of it coming and going and, you know. Uh, But really, it's seeing that when we use expressions like I or me or these self-referential terms, they are purely markers in our language they they they're required by the syntax of our language but they don't have any real referent and when you say like well there must be a creator see it's like saying we we say in our language it's raining so what is the it that's raining yeah there's no it that's raining it's required by our language that right. we talk that way right. so when when i say you know i'm sad really it serves some function when I say I'm sad, you can direct your attention over here. Not if I say Mike's sad, your eyes will go to him, but beyond that, it's not that there's a Mike in there that's sad or that there's a Joel in here who's sad, there's sadness arising, mm-hmm. and in a certain sense, this is a location marker. You know, okay. I say Mike is the, the, the de- designates a particular location where that is manifested. but the but even understanding this simply intellectually, as you know from your own experience, won't actually cut through this completely. Right. It's that, it's that looking and looking and looking until you yourself wake up to the fact that there is no one dreaming all this. Or you could say God's dreaming all this. Or you could say there is no observer observing all this. Or you could say God's observing all this. Mm-hmm. Because God is, everything. God has no description either. What are you going to say about God? How big is God? What color? You know, when you, when you take away all the attributes, the nothing and everything are, are identical. Mm-hmm. The two ways of saying the same thing. Right. The Buddhists like to say nothing because our minds hear God and we tend to make a thing out of God. But God to mystics is not anything. Mm-hmm. It's simply this awareness. Mm-hmm. So it's it's through that process of observing your experience like Mary Song's talking about, you know, or, or through practices of devotion where you start to live selflessly without all this concern for yourself and in point of fact, a combination of those things that you can wake up to the fact that there is no one in here that is suffering. There is no character in here. Or you could turn it around or you could say, you know, that it's only consciousness. Consciousness is... in is enjoying this movie. That's that's what it is. It's consciousness's movie, and consciousness is enjoying it. And then all the things you would experience as a character, you still experience, but they aren't you. So, uh, if Jennifer is late, let's say she says, "I'll be home by eleven o'clock." She's going to her mother's house to work on her mother's uh, books or something. She works. She's her mother's bookkeeper. So then it's uh you know, eleven fifteen and uh eleven thirty. So this is all relative to the situation. I know she's supposed to be home to by eleven. Maybe I'm reading and I stop Hmm, well, I'll give her ten more minutes, you know. And uh so now my mind, part of my mind's not focused on the reading, part of it's that's what worry is, do you know what I mean? Part of it's thinking about that. Okay. I'll give her 10.30. I'll go back to the reading. I'll drop it until 10.30. Yeah, I mean, or 11.30. 11.30, I'll call her mother. Her mother says, oh, I left 15 minutes ago. You know, I don't know why she's not home by now. Hmm. Well, I'll give another half hour, you know, midnight. Well, by, at some point, I'm going to make up my mind where I'm going to call the, the state police, you know. Mm-hmm. But all this is arising, you see. It's just arising out of the circumstances. Yeah. There's no one in here that this is happening to. I don't know how else to explain it.
2: Well, I, I I mean, it's clear. Bell, <laughs> all right. Got it. <laughs> how long I gonna keep it? I don't
1: know. But I got it. <laughs> don't keep it. Let it go. Let it go. You keep keeping go. things. No, I just wanted to see how we're doing here. Okay, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library and chat and whatever until. Peace to you all until we meet again.